You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. You can open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to share a message with you this morning entitled Preparing for Jesus. Preparing for Jesus. To give context to the moment in human history in which we live as the church. I mean, this has a twofold application. One is, yes, for us as a local body, I believe a pronounced message for us right now in this moment. But this, this lifestyle of being prepared and in being in preparation for King Jesus is a description of the life of any follower of Jesus in this moment in human history. It's with our eyes looked to, looking towards the horizon, towards our King, our soon coming King. So I want to make sure we we're grounded in scripture that, our, that we're living rightly in, in anticipation as Jesus time and time again encouraged his disciples to be ready, to be awake, to be alert, not trying to set dates, not trying to predict anything, but just to live a life ready, to, be, to live a life prepared. That's the, the constant language of Jesus as he's talking about the age to come, the fulfillment of all things. As, as he was inviting us into the last days, as he was pronouncing and announcing us the, the last days. So you can think of Jesus' first arrival as the delivery of an invitation into his kingdom. As Jesus said it, the kingdom of God is near. So King Jesus came from heaven, he came to earth to deliver an invitation to a wedding. A wedding that would take place. And so these last 2,000 years, we've been living in this season of embracing this invitation. And this invitation comes with phenomenal blessings. I don't, I don't, want, I don't mean to diminish at all the season in which we live, but it's not the fullness of all things. It's not the fulfillment of everything that we read about in Scripture. And our hearts, our souls acknowledge that as we see the tensions and the disconnects in the world around us. We live in this season of invitation. It's marked with tremendous blessings of relationship with the Holy Spirit, forgiveness from sins, new identity that's secured in Christ, and so on and so forth. It's marked with so many blessings, but it's not the fullness of all things. I think that's very important for us to draw that distinction between what we have and to live with a spirit of gratitude, gratefulness for it, but yet our hearts are looking and anticipating and expecting an even uh, fuller fulfillment of the things that Christ talked about, the fullness of things. To draw that distinction, I think, is very important. Me and my son, we just started a planning a trip to the southern rim of the, of the Grand Canyon one year from now, which seems like a long time to, to plan such a trip, but we're not planning on just walking around on the asphalt uh, hiking trails of, or hiking paths of the Grand Canyon. No, we are anticipating to, to do a difficult trek along the southern, a four-day journey along the southern rim of the Grand Canyon called the Escalante Trail. It's one of the more difficult uh, treks to take of the Grand Canyon. And it takes a lot of planning. It takes preparation. It takes some training. It takes um, true preparedness. So you don't get put in a, a dicey situation in, in light of the elements, in light of the, the weather, in light of the um, lack of water supply, all those things that come into play over a four-day journey. 
It's the preparation. And in that, situ- in that scenario, the preparation is clearly distinct from actually setting foot on, on the, 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 the ground there at the Grand Canyon. It's clearly different. They are, they're different worlds apart. One is for anticipation of a coming day. And so in this Christian life, what we are experiencing right now, right now is not everything that Christ paid for. He paid for something even greater, something imperishable and unfading, as we're going to read about here in 1 Peter chapter 1. An inheritance for us. And this season of preparation is meant to be distinct from the season to come. And it calls us to live in a certain way. It calls us to live with, with a, a certain desire and hunger and expectation and faith, not as, as so much as residents of, of this world, but as exiles, as pilgrims, as sojourners in this world in anticipation of a kingdom yet to be even more fully revealed. It's been revealed, but it's not fully revealed yet. That's the season in which we live. We have the spirit of the king with us, but we will see him again in glory. As Ephesians chapter one puts it, and this is not the only instance, so I'm not just proof texting here. Paul describes the Holy Spirit that we have now as a down payment or as a deposit or as a guarantee of what will be even more fully realized in the age to come. Ephesians chapter one, verse 14, this isn't on the screen, but, but just hear me. It says, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. And that's something he repeats in, in his letter to the Corinthians as well, m- multiple times. What we live in right now is this season of a first fruits or just like a, a wedding of the appetite of, of our souls, of our spirits, of our, our, our eternal beings. We have with us, and it is glorious to live in relationship, daily relationship, here and now, an intimate relationship with Holy Spirit. Is, it's a glorious thing, and I do not diminish that in the least bit. Walk in him, walk with him every single day. He's given you enough to today, for today. But as a child of God, what he has put in us in intimate relationship with Holy Spirit is this sense of, of the realities of the hope in the age to come, the fullness of all things. And so one of the, the common um, descriptions or illustrations or imagery that scripture lays out for us of the season in which we live is, is a picture of, of like a, a wedding ceremony and a, an engagement season, a wedding ceremony and uh, marital intimacy in God's people and him dwelling together for all of eternity. That, that's the picture. And so in this season in which you and I live now, we are in the engagement season. This is not marital bliss yet. The marital bliss awaits us in the age to come. We are in the season of preparation. And if you've ever been engaged, you know engagement is starkly different than marriage. In, in, in engagement, you're like, you're tempted to want to live like you're married, but you're not married. And you're, you're, you're just kind of counting down the days constantly. And you're preparing. You're busy. You're handling all these details of, of things of how to, to make that day sacred and beautiful and, and one of a kind. And then also to just like even grow in your maturity and intimacy and your relationships so that you're ready 
for marital bliss, a lifetime of marriage together, right? That is, that's engagement versus marriage. This weekend I got to officiate uh, a wedding, uh, Kyle Fall alum, AJ Ventura, if you know him, he married his, his bride, Maggie. But the last number of months for them were busy with preparation and, you're, and you're, their mind is set on that day that is to come. But it's not even so much about the day, right? And so it is for us believers. It's not even so much about, as scripture calls it, the day, capital D. It's much more about the person. And that's what we're preparing for. We're preparing not so much for a day or for a thing, but a person, for our bridegroom. And so that day, as beautiful as it is, and all the details of that day that, that come together to make a wedding beautiful and sacred, more than anything, it's about that groom locking eyes with his bride as she's walking down the aisle, and the two looking eye to eye at one another, committing their lives to each other. That's really what it's about. It's about the person, not so much the thing or the day. So I want us to see that here in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want us to set our hopes on Jesus as we, we look to prepare ourselves for him. 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter, an actual disciple that saw Jesus, saw the resurrected Jesus, a witness to those things, setting him on a plane to actually lay the foundations of the church, is writing to these believers who are spread across the Roman Empire because of persecution. So they are exiles. They are literal exiles, but he is also speaking here in a figurative way to the lifestyle of a Christian, which is to live life as an exile. We are not meant to, to make our home here on this earth. We're meant to live as pilgrims, as sojourners, as exiles, and that is, that is what he's calling them out. He said they've been chosen for their, their elect exiles. This is their way of life. So don't so much think that you're unique in your exile. And he's using language that refers them back to the way of the Jewish people who oftentimes lived in exile, a longing, longing for the promised land, longing for the fulfillment of the prophetic words that had been spoken to them through, from generation to generation. That is the way of life for us that we eat the food of scripture as our hope is set on things yet to come. In verse two, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So these are things that are according to God's foreknowledge, God, God knows about these things. The Lord's not caught off guard by anything that's happening on the earth right now. He's not caught off guard by these, these believers being spread, spread across the earth because of, uh, of persecution. The Lord works these things together for the good of those that love him, to, to bring to the fullness his plan. 
to set apart for himself a people being sanctified by the Spirit. That's what he says. Which is, that's what he's referring to when he talks about the sprinkling of his blood. He's actually referring back to this priestly way of sprinkling blood on the, on the altar, the sacrifice on the altar, sanctifying it. We have been, in an even greater way, in an even better way, been sanctified by the very blood of Jesus, by, by our great high priest. He is both sacrificed and priest, and we're set apart by him. For what? For obedience. To live a life of obedience Live a life that's different, that's otherworldly. We're submitted to our king. And here he says something that some of us sometimes have a hard time believing, but he prays over them that they may have grace and peace that's multiplied. Do you know that grace and peace are not a static thing, just fixed in, just in history in the cross? No, grace and peace is like a stream, it's like a river, that's meant to be multiplied out upon your life every single day. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't pray that. Peter is not praying just religious niceties. Here he is, he's praying and proclaiming over them an actual living reality, unleashed by the cross and by the resurrection. That grace and peace can be multiplied upon your life every single day. I'm gonna pray that upon you right now. I pray grace and peace upon this house this morning, upon every hearer. Lord, grace, the grace, the kindness of God being multiplied upon their life like a stream of living water, refreshing souls, reinvigorating their hearts and their minds to see you more clearly, that the peace of God would surpass understanding, surpass all of their circumstances, their experiences, their trials, their difficulties, in your mighty name, amen. It's so interesting that we, we read over phrases and like that, like that and we, we just kind of move on so quickly. But Peter wouldn't pray those things or proclaim those things over them unless there was, a, there was a truth to it, there was a substance to it. And so grace and peace can be multiplied to you and that's actually the life of abiding in Christ that we, we have available to us every single day, a life of dependence on the Lord, which we do experience all the more in the seasons of prayer and fasting because we have to depend on the Lord all the more as we're acquainted with our own weakness. Verse three, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is why we are called to live as exiles because we have been born again. Your primary origin story is not your your original place of birth or your original family story. I'm not minimizing those things. Those things are important and family heritage is, is great. There's so much we can learn from our past, but more than anything, as we surrender our life to the sufficiency of Jesus' work on our life, it's like the clock was reset and we were born again into a living hope. And this living hope is not a thing. It's not this ethereal object to be accessed through religious uh, ceremonies. This living hope is living because it's a person, a person who is resurrected. That's why he says living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The mercy of God was poured out to us, causing us to actually be born again. That's why there is no shame, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because the past is the past and it's buried in Jesus Christ. You now have a new life in him and a living hope that is real because Jesus actually conquered the grave. Verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for he who praised God. There is no expiration date on the promise of God over your life or the inheritance that Jesus accessed for us, the promised land that is ours. It's kept in heaven for you. An inheritance. Verse five, who by God's power, he's saying for you, this, so heaven for you. These are long sentences. Paul loves long sentences. For, for all the grammar nuts, they, uh, they go crazy reading Paul. But he was a, oh, sorry, this is Peter. Peter as well. They all use long sentences. And so he's referring to, to you, the ones who were, you have this inheritance kept for you in heaven. He says in verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you are being guarded. You are being kept. It's like a, the actual Greek word that Peter uses here is like, it's like a military language of creating this fortress to guard your life through faith. That's what's available to us every day as we await this day and this king to come back in glory. It's like we're hiding ourselves in this fortress, not from the world, but from the, the onslaught of trials and difficulties and the, the swirling uh, schemes of the enemy and lies that just nonstop, nonstop come at us. We have available for us this refuge, this, this military complex in Jesus that guards us for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, so many people wrongly associate salvation with a moment where we surrendered our lives to Christ solely. And that, this is why I think the distinction between the season in which we live and the season that, that is to come is, is so important. We, we associate salvation with a prayer that we prayed or a moment where we were born again and we're like, okay, that's it. That, that's all there is. No, what's, what's just, what just happened in your life is just the opening of the door to a, to a whole eternity now with God, relationship with God. And so there is an essence of salvation that is yet to be revealed it's going to be revealed in the last time. Glory is yet unknown. Aspects of this salvation, the saving work that Jesus purchased for us through the cross and through the resurrection, yet unknown, but to be revealed in the last time. My heart just gets excited just talking about this. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. So in all, all of that we rejoice in the mercy of God, in the living hope that we've been born into, in the inheritance that is yet to come, in the salvation that's yet to be revealed, we rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And this is the paradox that we all live in. This is why this is a real substantive message. Because we all do wake up Monday morning to real difficulties, to a mother who's in the hospital, or a spouse who is chronically ill, or a 
toxic work environment or difficulties in our academics or financial difficulties or the the whispers of, of old addictions that are still trying to lure us back. These various trials. But Peter, with no wavering in his pen here, with no wavering in his conviction, says you rejoice in what you have in Christ because it's alive, it's well, it's living, it's for real. Even though you can be grieved by certain temporary trials. So what I'm proposing this morning in living a life prepared in anticipation for the future inheritance that we have in Christ is not some form of escapism. It's not some form of just fake it till you make it and try to ignore the swirl of what's going around in your life. I'm, I'm actually talking about a real, gritty, substantive grace that's available to us in Jesus Christ as we embrace the not even embrace, but experience the grievous trials that we face every day, but yet our primary value and and, um, uh, substantive um, substance that feeds our soul comes from something that is not yet to be revealed. It's something that's hidden in Jesus Christ and yet to be revealed in the last days. I hope I'm making sense. Makes sense in my my mind before I start to speak and then I'm... Verse seven, it says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this life of joyful expectation and rejoicing in the future inheritance will be tested like gold refined in the fire. And he, he references gold as something of earthly value, but he says it's gonna perish. All the, the money and the stuff, the shiny stuff that we, that we know, it's gonna perish. But it gives a good word picture. It gives a good word picture of, of the, the, the real life that we live now in Jesus Christ. It's a faith that's being refined, that's fixed, in Jesus, and it's gonna result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I cannot wait for that day, for those, for those days in that life with Christ. Verse eight, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And I think there is something in Peter that, that genuinely really respects believers that have actually never seen the resurrected Christ as he has. Because he actually, he got to see the holes in his hands as he showed them to Thomas. He got to actually see Jesus as he just kind of appeared to them as they were all you know, shaking in, in fear uh, after his, after his uh, crucifixion. Peter got to see with his eyes, but he says, you love him even though you haven't seen him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with, with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There is this life of overflow. It's not a one-stop shop. It's not a, 
one experience and you're good to go, a single fuel up. No, this is a life available in Christ of continually being filled and fed by a narrative and by a, an identity and a life in God that's available for us that he feeds us, will, uh, feeds us with. To rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And again, he refers to the salvation different than the salvation of us just being born again once, but the salvation of our souls. There's, there's a coming day when judgment, the judgment of God will be made manifest to all of, all of humanity, to all of creation. And there will be this real sense of awe and reverence and even fearfulness at the saving work of God to save us from the justice of God. So that's what he's talking about, that, that, that which is going to be revealed, the salvation of our souls. And it's going to unleash this worship service in heaven of his kids dancing around the throne that, that he actually saved us. It's like the, the greater exodus out of Egypt. And in verse 10, then this is where he gives context to this season in which you and I live, this engagement season. The invitation has been given. He says, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that, would to, that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So that the prophets of old, the prophets from the, the old covenant that you know, Peter's most likely writing to primarily Gentile believers, but to, but to Jewish believers as well, they knew well, they knew, um, they were very familiar with the, the prophetic voices from the old covenant that searched and inquired carefully. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Our minds are always fixed on the timing of things, but we get it wrong when it's solely fixed on the timing of things. We are called to be discerning discerning and understanding of the times. But more than anything, what the prophets were, were seeking was who the person would be that would fulfill these prophetic, would fulfill these prophecies. Who is the person? Yes, it says in the time that the Spirit had chosen. But more than anything, it's the person that fulfilled those things. And so we do, I do believe we oftentimes veer off into the ditch when we get too drawn into projections and predictions of, of timings and interpreting every headline and, and things going on in politics and world governments, it's sobering just to look past the last 2,000 years and to think of the, um, the, the crazy travesties that have been uh, carried out against humanity and to not imagine in those times the same swirling sense of anticipation of the, the, the soon coming return of Christ would be. And so it's important for us to not get pulled too much into the timing of things as much as the person that these things point to, which is Jesus. And Jesus himself said, only the Father knows the timing of these things. Verse 12 says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This story is a story that even the heavenlies, they are intrigued. They're on the edge of their seats 
as the revealing of Jesus is unfolding before humanity. And those are the things that are being announced. And Peter, I believe, says it with a humble like delight in his heart. These things are being announced to you now. This season that we live in, let us not take it for granted, this season of invitation, as I said it from the beginning, this is the season of pronouncing where we say the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. The invitation has been given out. The, the parable that Jesus uses in the gospels is this picture of a wedding feast. And we are in this season where we are, we're getting the invitation out saying we want the banquet hall to be full. Like the engagement is on, have you heard? The, gr- the groom has covenanted himself to a, to a bride. And now it's our role as, as the body of Christ to extend the invitation to as many as possible that the banquet hall would be filled. That's part of the life of living prepared, living a life prepared for Jesus. So I, I say all of that. That's all the preface. Now I'm going to get into my message, okay? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he, he goes 12 verses to set the stage then for an exhortation in how to live. He wants them to understand the urgency for which they're supposed to live, the, 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 uh, the sense of sacredness of this moment. This is a holy moment to live in this moment of human history. The old covenant was a lesser covenant. The, the old covenant, there was no salvation. There's a, there was a righteousness credited to those who saw Jesus within within the, the, the revealings in the, in the law. But there was no salvation in the letter of the old covenant. And so we live in this moment where those greater things have been revealed. But yet, the fullness of this, those things have yet to be revealed. And so there should be this joyful like giddiness in our heart like an engaged, an engaged couple in anticipation of what is yet to come. That we're, we're counting down the days if the days could be known. That there's just this, even probably a better description is we, we just cannot wait. That rather than like toiling so much about and caring so much about our standing in this world and our net worth and proving ourselves to everybody around us, our eyes are fixed on a living hope in Jesus Christ, on something that's not of this world. And so he gives this strong 12 verses, giving them context to this moment in human history, that this is not it. You've experienced a down payment, a foretaste of salvation, but this is not the fullness yet. And so then he says, verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Like the most literal language is girding up the loins of your mind. If you had loins to be girded, (laughs) gird them. Preparing your minds. Probably the better description for us in the 21st century is like rolling up your sleeves. We're rolling up our sleeves of our mind for action. This life is but a vapor. That we live for eternity. We live for something 
not of this world. We are citizens of another kingdom, being sober-minded. So he, he, he's, like Peter's just immersing us in all, these, all this imagery, not living like just in this stupor, enamored by this world. Sometimes we walk around like that. We're just so enamored by the world, like, like we're in this drunken stupor, just, oh man, not knowing which way is which. No, be sober-minded. Like our eyes are just like fixed on our living hope in Jesus Christ. We are sober-minded. He's not so much calling out drunkenness. The, the apostles do that in other letters. He's more so referring to a way of life, of being sober-minded, that we are clear-thinking, that we are, we are attentive to the Lord's priorities and his values. Since, we're, since that's, that's our mindset, our loins are girded, our, our mind is sober, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like rest your hope, your, the, the substance of everything that you are hoping for and longing for and wanting, rest it all in the, in the, the grace that's going to be revealed to us in Jesus Christ on that day. That is how we're called to live. So I'm going to call the worship team forward. I totally psyched you out. You all thought I was going to preach another 40 minutes. I want to summarize and call us to response. So we are born again into a living hope. That means we live as exiles. We're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of somewhere else. That's the story that Christ started in you when you said yes to Jesus. When you placed your faith in him as the, the only savior of your soul, the only one who can forgive you of your sins, what was started in your life was a, an immersion into a citizenship and a new kingdom. Born of God, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and therefore, part of this life now in Christ is familiarizing ourselves with the values of the king, the priorities of this kingdom. That means we live that way. We actually, we actually begin to live like we're, we're exiles and we're pilgrims. I'm not saying you can't own a home. I'm not saying you, you can't hold down a regular job. You should do those things. You should live a quiet life and, and be a good citizen in this, in this world. But our value is not derived from those things and we are keenly aware of, like soberly minded regarding what really matters. The analogy I like to use is, is the analogy of going to travel to a foreign land. If you're gonna go there for two weeks or even a month, you're probably not gonna stockpile a bunch of stuff that you're not gonna be able to get back to your home country, right? Like you, your, your experience there in that foreign land is gonna look a certain way. You're much more of a visitor. You're much more of a tourist. You can be amazed by these things, but you know that you have a story in another place. You know that you have a life in another place, and it's in your homeland. Our homeland is in this kingdom, the kingdom of God. Actually, I um, was recent, recently reading a postcard 
from a mentor of mine, Joyce Schroeder. Joyce Schroeder wrote the, the, um, the preface or the foreword to that book that I wrote, A Prince from the Ashes. Just been a, such an uh, amazing voice in my life. But she recently wrote a postcard just about the season in which we are. And I felt like it was timely in light of what I felt like we were was calling our church into as well. But um, there's so much in that postcard that resonated with my heart. But at the end of it, she gave very clear takeaways about how we should live as believers in these last days, in this season of preparation for the things yet to come. She said, don't buy anything you, you won't need in the next year. I mean, after a year from now. Like, think, think about the here and now, not so much projecting so far into the future. She said, don't take on new debt. And she said, witness to whoever's in front of you. Live that way. What if we began to live that way? Live a simpler life that didn't get so swirled into projecting so far out, but instead lived as pilgrims, as sojourners. It's been said that the world is a bridge. The wise man will pass over it, but he will not build his house upon it. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 says that we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come. I believe in light of all that, we'll be the best citizens in any city because we'll value things that will actually bring about human flourishing and that we'll seek to serve, we'll seek to love those in front of us. So we'll be amazing citizens while still being sojourners and pilgrims. So that we're born again into a living hope. That means we're exiles. Secondly, we're set apart. That means there is something in us that resonates with the, the special hand of God upon us that was initiated by his adoption upon our life to bring us into the family of God. As Peter said it here, we've been sanctified. We've been set apart by God. There is this sense of urgent response to the Lord because the spirit of God has set us apart. So when you're not knowing how to live, when you're not knowing which way is up, when honestly you're feeling kind of beat down by the world, there should be this inner witness in your heart that says, wait a second, I'm special. <laughs> I'm chosen by God. I am set apart. And it doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter if you're cleaning toilets, if you're washing dishes, if you're sitting with kids, or if you're commanding a, you know, the chairman of a, of a board or something. It does not matter. You are special. There's something about you, not something, but someone that <laughs> lives in you the spirit of God that has set you apart. And so I, I say all of this using this a wedding analogy to, as I said at the beginning, to, to never minimize what Jesus started in us 2,000 years ago. There's so much in Jesus' example, and you, you can all stand because we're going to respond to the Lord. We really are, okay? We are really going to respond to the Lord. There's so much in Jesus' teaching and example that should invigorate our heart with faith and joy and expectation. But even on the night of, the night of his betrayal, when he met with his disciples, he uses the bread and the cup. But for, for Jewish people, thinking in terms of wedding analogies, when the groom would propose to his bridegroom, he oftentimes would 
initiate that covenant commitment to his bride with a cup. And he would drink from the cup and he would pass the cup to his wife and it would be the mark, you know, sealing that covenant to his wife. We oftentimes in our day and age think of the wedding day as the beginning of the covenant. In Jewish in a Jewish mindset, oftentimes it was the engagement, not oftentimes, it was the engagement that marked the, the covenant commitment of a groom to his bride. And so as Jesus meeting, he's not, he's not just coming up with the stuff on the fly. No, it's, a, it's immersed in millennia of, of tradition and culture that he's speaking out of. And he hands them a cup of covenant. He says the covenant of his blood because he's making a commitment to his bride. You are set apart. So we live in this season as one's promised to a groom. There's no second guessing that. There's no questioning that. Our our hope is in a groom, in a, a bridegroom king who is coming again. So we set our hope on him. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.